Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I don't just believe shit I hear on podcasts, and I hope you don't either. Be skeptical and look into things for yourself. If you find that I was wrong about something, the best thing you can do for me is to let me know. You can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware of the fact that I do swear and I don't bleep anything out. I barely know how to edit at this point, so that's just not worth the trouble for me. So listener discretion is advised. I'm Ruby and this is episode 79 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science and skepticism, environment and wildlife, and stuff I find cool that I want to learn more about, as well as ways that we as people could be better for future generations. So a bit different today, the skeptical segment will be followed by two environment segments and two wildlife segments, and then the positive bit. Warning, the first wildlife segment today contains information about harm to animals. You may want to skip that one, though the positive segment is pretty awesome, so hopefully everyone will leave the show feeling good today. On the agenda are false memories and false confessions, how parts of lithium batteries may soon be made from the lignin from trees, a lab-grown alternative to palm oil, and an animal welfare crisis I personally wasn't aware of, though it seems obvious now that I've thought about it. I also talk about the discovery of how glass frogs go transparent, and I'm ending on a positive note with a story shared by Keith Taylor from Modest Needs when he was interviewed on the Cognitive Dissonance podcast. And if you're interested in supporting the show, all the possible ways are listed after the final segment and thank yous. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. I really do appreciate you. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you find it both fun and informative. On episode 54, I had a segment on memories and how they are not what we tend to think they are. Memories are constructions of the brain, and the brain gets it wrong all the time, especially when manipulated to do so. On that episode, I gave an example of a study where people were manipulated into adding something to their memory, and how some were affected to the point where they were certain the tester was lying when presented with the evidence that they had unconsciously confabulated this one point. Before you email me that confabulate is to talk, look it up, by the way. It's one of those words with two meanings, like theory. Anyway, I've come across another study, this one from the 90s. How I didn't come across it when I was reading up for the memory segment on 54, I have no idea. It was a huge miss on my part. So I had to do a follow-up and share this one as well. The different twist on this particular memory study is that it was not just about causing someone to unintentionally create a memory of something that didn't happen, or something which was not present. It had a focus on seeing if these methods could lead to false confessions. If you're better informed about these things than me and already know the study I'm about to talk about, you may want to skip to the next section, but if you haven't heard of the Yalt-Key study, this is fucking fascinating. In 1996, 40 male and 39 female participants were told that they were taking part in a typing experiment. Someone read words to the participants at different speeds, and they were to type them out on the computer keyboard. But they were all warned before they began that the alt key on the keyboard was faulty and they were not to hit it under any circumstances or the system would crash. A few things were done differently with different groups to see if certain circumstances would be more likely to result in a false confession. It was thought that those who were read the words very slowly would be more confident of their innocence, while those who were read the words very quickly might be less confident and more likely to confess. 
And then, once accused, half of them were told that an onlooker saw it happen, that there was an eyewitness to the pressing of the alt key, and the other half were not told this particular lie. The questions put forward which researchers were hoping to answer were, how often will the presentation of false evidence lead a person to confess to an act they didn't commit? I think this is an important question considering the lies police are allowed to tell in interrogations. They also hope to determine how many of those who falsely confessed actually believed it as opposed to just doing so to stop the questioning. Obviously, this would be subjective to people admitting such a thing after the experiment is revealed. One would hope that the participants would be honest, though. How many of those who believed their own false confessions fabricated details about their non-existent act? Details they admittedly believed. And the final question put forth was, how does the level of a person's certainty about their innocence affect that person's vulnerability to falsely confessing? The results? When asked to sign a statement taking responsibility for the hitting of the alt key, 69% of the participants signed the false confession presented to them. While I didn't see mention of the speed making a difference, there was a large difference with those who were told that someone saw them do it. Of the half participants presented with false eyewitness evidence, 94% signed the confession. 54% of them admitted to having believed that they were indeed guilty. And 20% created scenarios about it, changing and adding to their own memories to the point where they were convinced they had done this thing. When informed of the true nature of the study, these 20% must have been the most astounded by the results. I think it would be humbling, or maybe even unsettling, to see in real time how your own brain can be so easily reprogrammed. So the next time you hear someone saying that false confessions aren't a thing, you tell them they need to be skeptical, damn it. I am certain that Lignin has come up on a segment before, but can't for the life of me figure out what it was related to. Maybe a glue? I just can't recall. Anyway, today I'm talking about Lignin and batteries. I'm pretty sure I explained batteries and the parts and how they work on episode 41, so won't be doing that again here. Just talking about where the Lignin can be brought in. Lignocellulosic biomass is a substance made up primarily of lignin, cellulose, and hemicellulose, and it is one of the most naturally abundant resources on the planet. The cellulose is regularly isolated from lignocellulosic biomass for the purpose of making paper and fibers, among other things, leaving the lignin as a waste byproduct of the processes. So it's something that is not only renewable, but also already present in large amounts of waste from these factories. Lignin is a polymer which contains carbon, which is what many components of a battery are composed of. The more parts of a battery that could be produced with renewable resources as opposed to the metal used now, the better. It's believed that lignin-based materials could eventually make up the binder, separator, electrolyte, anode, and cathode of a battery. This is a summary podcast, not a place to spend hours going over studies, but I will have a link to the studies if you want to get into specific details of how it's a great material for each of these components. A few of the positive qualities used to describe lignin is that it creates structural durability, has mechanical strength, has great binding ability, and is also a very good ion conductor. A Finland company called Stora Enso owns large areas of forest and produces wood and paper-based products. This means they have 
plenty of lignin as waste. The company hired some engineers to look into making use of the lignin for electric vehicle batteries. They are now processing the lignin waste already being created in other processes to make a carbon material for the anodes of the batteries. A Swedish company called Northvolt has partnered with them to manufacture electric vehicle batteries that charge in eight minutes by 2025. That's quite the goal and not a whole lot of time to finish it, but I'll be watching for that follow-up. This is just one small part of the battery, and it's already a huge difference when the number of batteries made daily is taken into account. Maybe as time goes on, they will move on to other parts of the battery until Lignin makes up all the parts it has the potential to. These are baby steps, but that's how everything starts, right? This is something that the next round of researchers can build upon, possibly getting further and further each time. Palm oil makes up 40% of all vegetable oils and is an ingredient in 50% of all packaged food products. And it's also in a lot of cosmetic shampoos and deodorants. And I can't forget to mention my favorite specifically, chocolate. Palm oil is a major ingredient in there too. Its extreme popularity is due to the fact that it can add a nice smooth texture, act as a natural preservative, and maintain its properties under high temperatures, while not affecting the taste, smell, or appearance of what it's contained in. A great deal of our world relies on palm oil, but if we could replace it with something more sustainable, that would be ideal. You see, the palms which produce the oil grow best in low-lying, hot, wet areas near the equator, and it's a major driver of deforestation of some of the world's most biodiverse forests. Huge chunks of rainforest are burned away to make room for the plants. This burning affects the air quality for miles, and these particular forests, which are being destroyed in order to grow these palms, contain the habitats for endangered species such as orangutans, pygmy elephants, and Sumatran rhinos. Then, of course, there are the contributions to climate change, worker exploitation, and even child labor issues with palm oil. The good news is that there may one day be a viable replacement option. Professor Chris Chuck and his team at the University of Bath worked on the development of a yeast-based alternative to palm oil for eight years. A tech-based business in the UK called the Clean Food Group has acquired this intellectual property from the university, and the two are now working together to scale the technology and get this product to market. A New York company called C16 Biosciences spent four years developing their product thanks to financial backing from Bill Gates. They came up with a strain of yeast that naturally produces an oil with very similar properties to palm. This company is looking to partner with beauty companies to replace the palm oil in things like moisturizers and soaps. They claim there are future plans to get into the food business as well. So, as dependent upon it as we are today, there may actually be a day when viable palm oil substitutes are being produced all over the world, in places where they never could have produced it before. Imagine living in Canada and being able to buy locally grown and processed palm oil. Except it won't be palm oil, but it'll be the same as palm oil, without the child trafficking and shit. This segment has a trigger warning for harm to animals. The headline that first brought my attention to this issue was something to the effect of the biggest animal welfare crisis you never heard of. And it turned out to be right. Once it was before me, it seemed like it should have been an obvious issue all along, but I have to admit it just never crossed my mind. To be fair, I do live in the middle of Canada where our live animals are mainly transported by land. What I'm talking about is a practice of shipping live sheep, cattle, etc. via long, dangerous trips at sea. The conditions are often way overcrowded and the animals suffer fatigue, heat stress, and even injuries. And the overcrowding makes it easy for disease to spread. Animals are suffering, getting sick, and dying before they make it to their destination. 
called the meat industry's cruelest practice. The world's attention was brought to the concern after an accident in 2019. Obviously, I missed it. This ship was carrying 14,000 sheep from Romania to Saudi Arabia for slaughter when it capsized. Just about every one of those 14,000 sheep drowned, and there are awful images out there of the corpses floating in the Black Sea. When the ship was brought to shore and examined, there were secret unauthorized decks discovered, which indicates it regularly carried an unsafe number of animals. Just fucking awful. And while this was one of the deadliest livestock at sea tragedies, it was in no way the only one. There have been plenty of reports of drowned land animals as well as animal abuse from aboard these ships. The Suez Canal was blocked in the spring of 2021 and thousands of sheep and hundreds of cattle were forced to wait and suffer for an extended period in horrible conditions. In late 2020 and early 2021, two vessels containing 2,600 cattle made the perilous journey with the animals but were denied permission to unload them when blue tongue, a contagious bovine disease, was discovered to be present. No port would allow them in, and those cattle were stuck in those conditions on those ships for three months. They finally had to bring them back and kill them all. That seems like a fuck of a lot of suffering, just to kill and waste them all in the end. How did I never realize the extent of the awfulness of this practice? The number of things I continue to remain ignorant of really astounds me sometimes. I want to know it all, but there will never be enough time for that. Anyway, the publicity of the capsizing of the one ship and the horrible situations of the other three ships really brought attention to the issue and prompted a growing movement to end the live export of farm animals for slaughter. It was recently banned in Luxembourg and New Zealand, and in October, Germany announced that it will end live export outside of the EU and called for an EU-wide ban on the practice. This is a country that makes a lot of money off of these exports, yet they stated in their announcement that they could no longer stand by and watch as animals on long transports suffer and die in agony. Wow, good on them. What a switch this world has made in the last hundred years, right? We have Germany doing the right thing and America devolving into Nazism. I can't help but wonder what it would be like for those who fought against Germany in the war if they could see their ancestors today. Many of them would be so very ashamed. It's been a while since I've had an animal to be excited about. I knew that glass frogs existed, but this latest discovery is so fucking cool, and while reading about it, I took a good look at some images for the first time. What a trip. When asleep, glass frog species become translucent, with their bones, eyes, and organs all clearly visible. While becoming translucent is a common ability for sea creatures, it's quite rare on land. Studying these frogs has a unique challenge. They are completely opaque when awake or stressed, and they remain completely opaque when put under anesthesia. They only go translucent when having a nice natural sleep, meaning that if one wants to study them while they're translucent, they have to do so very, very carefully while they are naturally resting without disturbing them. Not the best conditions to study an animal under. Anyway, this latest discovery is really cool. We now know how glass frogs make themselves translucent. They take their red blood cells out of their circulatory system and conceal them in their livers. What? That's some wild shit right there. And this could lead to some major advances in blood clotting research. But first, how was this team of biologists and biomedical engineers able to figure this out? Well, with not being able to touch them while they're studying them while they're translucent, what's going to work? Shining lasers at them. Red blood cells in a frog absorb green light. So a green laser was used, and the red blood cells absorbed the light and showed this via ultrasonic sound waves, which were picked up by a sensor. 
This traced where the blood cells were in the body, and they did this while the frogs were awake and then while they were asleep. And while sleeping naturally, the red blood cells seemingly disappeared from the body of the frog. Except for the liver, where 90% of them were hidden away during this time. The thing that's really caught the attention of the researchers is the fact that they were able to do this without any clotting issues and without any damage to any tissue. The next step is to figure out how they are accomplishing this without these issues. The hope is that glass frogs may advance our understanding of blood clotting and one day be able to use that knowledge in human beings. This latest work has been published in the journal Science. I've talked about modest needs before, probably on the episode where I recommended the Cognitive Dissonance podcast. The gentleman of Cogdis, scathing atheist, god-awful movies, dear old dads, D&D minus, and probably a few I'm not thinking of right now, work together on a really great cause. It's called Vulgarity for Charity, and it specifically raises money for modest needs. People who want roasts done for pretty much any one or thing make a donation to Modest Needs and submit a proof of payment to Cogdis. Or any of the other podcasts, too, I think. My main one of them all is Cognitive Dissonance. When they first got this going, it quickly became so popular that they couldn't keep up and had to limit the number of roasts that get done going forward. So their fans are donating for the chance to have their roasts done. It's not even a guarantee. Yet they still come out in droves every time. This latest round of roasts in November brought in $400,000. So scoff at the method if you want, but it's fucking working. The number of people Modest Needs can save from eviction or poverty with this money is almost overwhelming. The fans of these podcasts step up every time. And as awesome as that $400,000 is, that's not the good story I have for you today. I want to share the story that was shared by Keith Taylor of Modest Needs when he was interviewed on Cognitive Dissonance, episode 664. Modest Needs is a nonprofit which is about helping the working poor, people who are holding it together but one little thing can tear it all apart, people who can't get help from anywhere else because they're employed, people who have tried and been told they just don't qualify for anything. The goal of Modest Needs is to help out in short-term emergencies and hopefully keep people from falling into poverty or ending up on the streets. Someone who falls behind due to an illness and finds himself facing eviction. Someone who needs money to fix a vehicle so they can continue to make an income. These aren't huge amounts, but they make massive differences to the people who get them. They put lives of single parents and their children on better paths than they would have been without the boost they got from modest needs. They have helped to keep roofs over the heads of countless families with very modest amounts. Anyway, this one story that Keith Taylor was kind enough to share with Tom and Cecil on episode 664 was a little different. It was in the first year of Modest Needs' existence. One of the requests they received was from a first-year grad student. This student had been granted an interview at a prestigious medical school, but it was 800 kilometers away. That's 500 miles. And they had no way to get themselves there. So the request that they put in was for $50 for a bus ticket. Imagine trying to be sharp-minded and professional at an interview like that after a 500-mile bus ride. But they literally just wanted the very minimum it would take to get them there. It was decided that this was a worthy cause, and Modest Needs got them a plane ticket so that they could get to this interview and not be a mess from such a long, exhausting bus ride. Last year, Modest Needs had their 20th anniversary, so this happened about 20 years ago. Last year, they received a piece of mail from some amazing hospital in Minnesota, and when they opened it, there was a letter inside. This person from 20 years ago was writing to thank them and tell them how things turned out. They were accepted into that prestigious medical school and went on to become the head of pediatric medicine at the hospital on the envelope the letter came in. Their pediatric specialty is cases where every other doctor has tried and can't help or save the child. 
When this happens, those pediatricians send their patient to this doctor who got where they are today because of a modest charitable gift when they most needed it. The letter went on to say that they save more than they lose and that they wanted the charity to know that there are people literally walking around alive now because of that plane ticket. It's such a great example of how a small kindness can make a huge difference. This one may have changed the world. Who knows what these children that the world could have lost out on may accomplish as adults. The chain reactions that can occur from kindness or from cruelty are very powerful. Just remember that a kind act, even if it seems small and meaningless to you at the time, has the potential to lead to something truly beautiful. My notes have been tossed off my table. That's a bad habit I have. But it tells me there's nothing left, so that's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. My eternal gratitude goes out to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project three years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And of course, thank you to my family. I have kids that inspire me in so many ways. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 80 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate or to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player. Or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found at our Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok. Under LTE Pod on Twitter, and it can now be found at LTE Pod on Hive, though I think it can still be found if you search Living Through Extinction there as well. There is also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. 